0: Welcome to this week's edition of Peaks and Troughs, where we explore the ups and downs of life in Hong Kong. This week's subject is flying in the Hong Kong skies, and I'm delighted to welcome Cathy Pacific's Chief Operating Officer, Rupert Hogg, to the studio today. It's unfortunate that just as we hear from IATA's Tony Tyler that global air safety has never been better, this week sees another tragic air crash, this time the German Wings plane in the Alps. The cause has not yet been established, but it's beginning to look as if one pilot was able to lock the other out of the cockpit. Mental stability for pilots is obviously a key issue. Talking to Cathay Pacific's pilots, I understand that when they are recruited, they undergo a psychiatric screening, a checked out by the aviation doctor, and it's Cathay Pacific policy to insist on there always being two people in the cockpit at any one time. So if one pilot leaves for any reason a member of the cabin crew, will step in until he returns. As I understand it, these rules about locking cockpit doors were brought in in the wake of 9-11 to prevent further terrorist attacks. But in a recent US Airlines case, one pilot was accidentally locked out, which meant that the other pilot had to land the plane solo. Joining me now is Rupert Hogg, Chief Operating Officer of Cathay Pacific. Thanks for joining me today, Rupert. In the light of these doors, which were modified 10 years ago, or more than 10 years ago, really, after 9-11 as a security measure, do you think once this investigation into the German wing's crash is finished that we'll see a change again into this overriding door mechanism systems?
1: Thanks, Anna, for having me on the show. Uh, And it's a tragic day, I think everyone would agree, for aviation. And I'm sure that when all the facts are known, there will be a a review, as there sensibly should be, uh, of what to do about doors and access to the cockpit.
0: Do you think that this door policy of making them inaccessible from the outside has actually helped prevent terrorist attacks, or do you think that's more down to increased security at airports?
1: Well, I think the answer is both are important. So obviously you have to do a complete risk assessment of uh, what the issues are. But uh, I think that uh, knowing that the cockpit is relatively impenetrable will have had uh, an impact no doubt but obviously in the main you want to move upstream and, and eliminate the risk at source so I suspect the airport uh, screening is more important.
0: Right so do you think this is the end or will we ever have an open door policy again on on doors and cockpits?
1: I think generalizing you won't see an open door policy ever again.
0: Thank you Rupert but in spite of this week's tragedy the big-picture fact remains that air travel has never been safer, as IATA boss Tony Tyler explained on his recent trip to Hong Kong.
2: Well, last year was a year of contrast because we had um, several very high-profile tragedies which caused tragically significant loss of life compared with the previous year or the recent five-year average. Uh, But overall, the safety statistics showed significant improvement. Uh, We had only one serious accident in every 4.4 million flights, which is significantly better than the five-year average, which is one serious accident in every 1.7 million flights. So the year did have some very serious tragedies. And, of course, the the loss of life um, of of just over 600 people last year was was a tragedy for each one concerned and their loved ones and families. Uh, But overall, aviation is getting safer.
0: Well, that's very good news. I think here in Hong Kong and in China there's been a lot of focus on MH370 because so many of the people on that airliner, the one that was lost a year ago, were indeed from China, I think uh, as many as two-thirds. So tell us a bit about where we are with the black box because this is the thing that we're looking for and can't find. Why is something so heavy put in an aircraft and why doesn't it back up to a computer other than itself?
2: Well, the reason that that, uh, flight data recorders, both the the digital flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, the reason they're heavy is that they have to be built very strongly and robustly to withstand the impact of of an accident if it were to happen, because that's when you need to see what the data is. Now, why doesn't it stream the data so you don't need to find a a data recorder from the wreckage of an aircraft if if there's been an accident? Well, the, the Comprehensiveness of the data on those recorders is, is intense. They will tell you everything that that aircraft has been doing, every control input that's been made, and so on. It's simply impractical to expect every aircraft to stream all that data in real time um, 100,000 flights a day and streaming in real time all that data. It's, it's just not practical to expect that. So, if we are going to stream data, we're going to need to select which data to stream, and it's not going to be as comprehensive as we currently get from the data recorders. Um, there's been a debate about whether the data recorder should be deployable so that they'll separate from the aircraft if it uh, has an accident or if it goes into the water. Mm. Um, uh, but again, you know, that, that's a separate debate. If we're going to stream, then we don't need to do that. So there's, a, there's, a, there's some interesting discussion going on right now about the best way to do this going forward. Right.
0: That was Tony Tyler, Director General and CEO of IATA, on a recent trip to Hong Kong. Rupert, I think we're all very confused about this airspace business over Hong Kong. Tony said that there's now 100,000 planes in the air at any one time. Other countries have congested skies. Take Switzerland, for example. They have to deal with their own three airports, plus Germany, Austria and France and Italy on their doorstep. Why is it that we here in Hong Kong have a problem? Why are our skies log-jammed with planes?
1: Well, the first thing I'd say... uh I'm not sure how much I'd describe it as a problem per se. I mean, Hong Kong is the third largest international airport in the world. 63 million people passed through this airport last year. And, of course, there are sizable uh, airports in uh, in the Pearl River Delta, Shenzhen and, and obviously Guangzhou as well. So there is a lot of traffic here uh, in, the, in the skies. Um, and... I think it's a a consequence of of Hong Kong being such a a big and successful hub.
0: Rupert, with the two-hour delays now, often the the case when you try to fly up to Beijing or Shanghai in the mornings, it's now reached the point where many businessmen would not even attempt to do Shanghai as a day trip anymore. Can you explain, please, what's happening with the military airspace in China and why this China congestion problem continues?
1: Well, certainly, uh, I think... First things first, I I talked about the growth generally in China. Um, And if you look in China, I mean, the 2,800 aircraft, I think, in in 2014 amongst the Chinese airlines going to 6,500 by 2034. So that's just an indication of the amount of growth. The airspace itself is uh, much of it is under uh, the control of the military. And they release that airspace for, uh, for commercial flights, if you like. Uh, I think all parties are aware of the issue uh, and, and there are steps being taken to see whether more air routes can be opened up. But uh, that's that's the way forward.
0: So that situation is going to get better?
1: I hope it will get better. I think everyone appreciates that there is a growing demand for uh, more uh, air travel in China and as a consequence you know the infrastructure whatever form it may be needs to move with it.
0: The lack of airspace issue is particularly acute for Hong Kong's private jet operator Metrojet because they have to line up behind the commercial aircraft to get slots into China too. Here's Metrojet CEO Bjorn Naff who doesn't mince his words. The problem, as he sees it, is this.
3: Too much traffic and there is uh, too little uh, airspace to to control and and, and navigate all the the traffic flow through.
0: So if it opens up, is it good news for you? Or will it be bad news because it opens up the the competition?
3: No, that doesn't matter. No, no, of course not. I mean, it's good for us, it's good for our clients because then they can fly when they want uh, without any delays. At the moment,
0: how long do they have to wait?
3: Uh, that depends. Uh, our clients normally give us uh, uh, quite a long time, a heads up, so we can plan. Uh, I mean, in, in some instances, it takes uh, half a day for, for a private jet trip to be planned into China. Sometimes uh, it's within hours, depending on, 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 on the day and the time of the day. Uh, and it has improved, I must say, as well. Uh, s- uh, several years back, I think, there was, uh, was two, three days, and, and today it's, it's, it's almost uh, within hours sometimes when you can get your, your slot into China.
0: So would most of your clients be Chinese mainland Chinese businessmen?
3: Um, yes, but not only. Uh, we have as well international clients which are coming through Hong Kong and then going into, Chiang, uh, into China. Uh, we have uh, other people as well. It's Hong Kong businessmen. It's, it's, it's uh, owners of private jets flying uh, in and out of China through uh, or with metal
0: So what percentage would be Hong Kong owned and what percentage?
3: Oh, that's very difficult. Owned. That's very difficult to say. We do about... Uh, uh, 9,000 flight hours uh, in a year and about 70% of these flight hours is within Asia. The rest is, is, is overseas, international flights, Europe and the United States. Uh, so it's maybe uh, 6,000, six, 7,000 hours, which is done in this part of the world.
0: That was Bjorn from Metrojet. So from the smallest planes in the sky to the cheapest. Ten years ago, we were told that low-cost carriers were going to see off their big lumbering legacy colleagues. But looking around us now, this isn't exactly the case. Although 40% of aircraft movements in Southeast Asia are now budget airlines, so they've got a pretty good hold. But in spite of this, Cathay Pacific has no plans to start a low-cost carrier. Rupert, what's the main reason that you think low-cost carriers don't work in Asia? And why does Cathay Pacific have no plans to have a low-cost carrier of its own?
1: Well, I think answering the first question first... um I wouldn't be categoric to say they can't work, but one of the big differences between Asia and and the uh, low-cost carriers operating in Europe and America is that in Asia, they're largely, in fact, almost wholly flying on city pairs that the legacy carriers, the existing carriers, are already flying on. So they're not opening up, per se, new routes or new city pairs. Uh, And, and of course, that means they have to compete with, with carriers like us.
0: I see. So do you see them as competition?
1: Yes. I mean, there are 104 carriers, I think, operating into Hong Kong. I think 20 of those would would classify themselves as low-cost carriers. And, uh, I mean, we welcome any competition and and any style of of business model, uh, and we just compete by offering what we hope are uh, products and services that people value and and see the difference in and are prepared to uh, pay for that difference.
0: Now, I'm often to be found on a Tuesday morning getting up at the crack of dawn to try and get one of your super cheap fanfares. What is this fanfares promotion all about?
1: Well, we've been running fanfares for probably three or four years now. And as you say, we sell about 2,000 tickets every Tuesday morning. Uh, and it's really an opportunity for people, as you say, to buy super super cheap tickets uh, to an attractive range of destinations. So every, every Tuesday there's 11 destinations, I think. Uh, about 11 destinations, and we've probably done 80 destinations. So it's a way of giving people access to the full range of the combined network of Cathay Pacific and Dragonair uh, at knockdown prices, and it's it's a pro- uh, promotional um, product to that end.
0: But that's as far as you're going on the cheap fares. Absolutely no plans for an LCC low-cost carrier.
1: Well, there are two questions in there. On the issue of would we have a low-cost carrier, I think for us, no, the answer would be emphatically no. Uh, We believe we have a very strong business model. Uh, We have different classes of travel to suit different needs, uh, and that gives us a different and and superior yield mix, if you like, revenue mix, compared to a low-cost carrier. We also carry a lot of cargo. We're one of the largest combined passenger cargo carriers in the world. And with big, wide-bodied aircraft, we can carry a lot of cargo. And it makes a big difference to our commercial model.
0: That was Rupert Hogg, COO of Cathay Pacific. So it's all about uncontested city pairs and being the first in, it seems. Hong Kong's own homegrown low-cost carrier, HK Express, disagrees 100%. Commercial director Luke Lovegrove... Mrs. Cathay Pacific's foray into cheap fares as just a gimmick. A gimmick?
4: Well, we've carried 1.7 million passengers over the last 18 months that we've existed, um, and we're incredibly happy with that performance, and we're looking forward to even more growth in the future. Um, so I think it's a little bit disrespectful to say that those 1.7 million passengers actually probably uh, wouldn't have been you know, useful to, to uh, Cathay Pacific. Um, I I think that what we've been able to achieve um, is offering far lower fares and allowing people to fly that much more often um, than was possible before. So if you look at what happened before we existed, uh, people were perhaps flying once or twice in their lifetime. They're now able to fly a lot more frequently, perhaps two or three times a year uh, because of our low fares. So this has assisted... Um, on on several fronts, uh, not to mention skilled employment, but economic prosperity um, and increased tourism. Um, So this is is something that shouldn't be dismissed.
0: Okay. Well, Cathay Pacific and Dragonair have very cheap economy fares now, and they've introduced fan fares. So how can you compete with those?
4: Uh, I don't think it's a question of us trying to compete with them. I think it's a question of them trying to compete with us. Uh, we actually have a, a mega sale on a frequent basis. Uh, we have other other sales, other promotional activities in between. Um, there are always low fares available through our website. Um, we, as HK Express, make it our job on a daily basis to offer low fares. Um, the likes of the traditional airlines are only able to offer a very finite amount of seats at very low fares and it's usually a gimmick.
0: What do you mean, a gimmick?
4: It's usually something that is a headline grabber that is not available to the public, and so it causes a lot of, dis- you know, dis- disappointment and frustration. Um, and we've seen that in the headlines with uh, with those promotions. Um, whereas our promotions are deeply available. Um, we, you know, we live and breathe low cost. We're trying to pass all the unnecessary costs that we've cut from the business on directly to the consumer. Right. So the customer actually appreciates that.
0: Okay. So let's wind the clock forward. And supposing China Eastern gets its low-cost carrier, as we're hearing they will, and there might be other ones operating out of Hong Kong, will you be able to compete?
4: Well, we're certainly not afraid of competition. Um, we, uh, there, Sorry, there are about uh, 17 or 18 low-cost airlines that actually fly into Hong Kong. Um, so uh, I think what we're able to offer is... a Choice for the Hong Kong-based customer that wants to fly with a Hong Kong company. Um, we pride ourselves on being um, locally based, locally grown. Um, we, you know, you can you can buy dim sum on board. Um, we we have the iconic skyline on our aircraft. It's very important for us to show that we are a Hong Kong-grown company, um, and we live by those principles. And actually, that's what differentiates us between uh, us and the competition.
0: Okay. So tell me, how do you recruit your pilots? Do you do any training yourselves?
4: Uh, we don't have any cadet scheme at the moment, um, although that's probably something on the cards for the future. Uh, but we uh, we recruit through a, a, a series of, of funnels, um, through agencies, um, through specialist training agencies, um, and through uh, direct applicants.
0: In the light of the third runway, Luke, I believe we face a situation where, in the case of your tickets, the cost of the ticket would be less than the $180 departure tax and the airport taxes. Is that the case?
4: Well, on some of our promotional flights, um, that might be the case. So uh, at the moment, we have a mega-sale. Uh, fares are from $88. Uh, so if you're talking about an airport tax of 180 on top of the airport taxes that we are already paying, um, you're looking at a, a huge increase over a, a, the cost of a ticket that somebody might pay. Um, it's. it's I, I do believe that it's not right to pass the cost of developing the third runway directly onto the consumer. This is something that the airport should should self-fund.
0: That was Luke from HK Express. So, from the cheapest to the biggest. Rupert, does CAFE have any plans to buy any very large aircraft, such as the Airbus A380?
1: Well, I think I would never say never, but uh, we've been very public about our plans for fleet expansion, and we've ordered aircraft now, 76 coming in the next 10 years. Uh, And the basis of our our strategy is large twin aircraft. So we've got the super fuel-efficient A350, 900s and 1000s coming, and they supplement the already very successful 777s we've got. To answer the question of why we've taken that policy apart from these aircraft being very fuel efficient, is that we believe frequency to destinations is a real attraction to our customers, to be able to get on any one of five flights a day at different times of the day to Heathrow being a case in point, uh, rather than having a lot of capacity on fewer flights. So that's the broad basis for our strategy so far.
0: I see. So you've taken the, the route of more flights more often, rather than big planes and fewer flights.
1: Yes, and it also helps build our all-important Hong Kong hub because, of course, every frequency connects to an exponential number of other flights leaving Hong Kong when it comes in. So if you have more frequencies to destinations and more destinations, then clearly the amount of uh, destinations that can be offered over a hub goes up exponentially.
0: I see. Now, Rupert, pr- we couldn't mention Cathay Pacific without pilots, really. I think every time I open the newspaper, I see something going on about you having some kind of an argument with the, the guys at the front end of the plane. Is this because pilots the world over are a difficult bunch, or are yours just a particularly tricky lot?
1: Well, I don't, I don't hold the view that pilots anywhere are a particularly tricky bunch. I think pilots are uh, very competent, uh, independent thinkers... Uh, and are extremely professional uh, about what they what they do. Um, so I, I I don't take the view that, that the pilots in Hong Kong who work for the Cafe Pacific Group are any different to other pilots.
0: But I understand that you have upwards of two dozen different pay scales for your pilots. So how can you hope to keep the peace when they're all on different remuneration packages?
1: I think, I think when you're talking about pay scales, you, we, we actually have uh, a number of different pilot groups. So we have a Hong Kong-based b- uh, group of pilots, and then we have pilots on basings in Australia or or Europe or or, or North America. And of course, all of those uh, pilot groups are on slightly different terms and conditions based on, in part, the tasks they do and and uh, obviously uh, market forces. And that's the key issue, really. You know, we have to be competitive in the marketplace to retain uh, and attract the best talent. Uh, And we, of course, believe we are, uh, uh, you know, paying uh, market-based salaries.
0: Thank you. That was Rupert Hogg, COO of Cathay Pacific. Sounds like he has quite a job on his hands, with 3,000 pilots and multiple pay scales to contend with. Looking to the future, of course... He'll have an added challenge. As the number of older expatriate pilots diminishes through retirement, there'll be more Generation Y folks coming up through the ranks. And that will lead to a new approach to relationships. And, he says, a need for improved communications. But what's going on now with the pilots and the management? Is it a dispute? Is it a work to rule? What is it exactly? I asked Chris Beebe, General Secretary of the Pilots Union, the AOA.
5: Well, it is a dispute. Uh, right now, the pilots are uh, in dispute with the company over pay. Uh, we're continuing to negotiate on a number of other issues, uh, rostering or the scheduling of pilots is one, uh, basings is another. That is how the pilots are able to uh, obtain their individual bases, and a couple of other issues. But right now, the, the big issue is uh, pay, and the pilots are currently in contract compliance over that.
0: Right. So, just for us who really don't understand too much about all this, the nuts and bolts of it, that is, is communication, better communication, the answer?
5: Well, if you're referring to the uh, company, uh, better communication is always good. But there are some gaps, I think, in terms of uh, how the company uh, treats their pilots. Um, It's a very complicated situation. I think, in some ways, the fact that Swire is a large part of Cathay Puts them under a, a bit of tension in that Swire wants to be a world-class, world-renowned company. Cathay also does, but being here in Hong Kong, I think it presents its own local challenges, if you will.
0: Right, and what are they?
5: Well, one of the issues is that uh, the company has continued to hire local pilots, and uh, those local pilots are generally ab initio or zero-time pilots who are trained as cadets and then. Brought to, the, uh, brought to Cathay Pacific as second officers. Uh, eventually, uh, that stream will probably uh, begin to dry up. Uh, there are also some other ways that uh, Cathay Pacific uh, brings people into the company as pilots, but right now, that's been the major way. So things will definitely change as we move forward.
0: Right. So taking up the point of the Generation Y guys taking over from the older uh, expatriates on very high pay scales... How's the culture in the company going to need to change, in your view?
5: It's interesting. Generation Y is much less wedded uh, in the way of loyalty to institutions than previous generations have. So I think that there's going to be a challenge for the company, and quite frankly for the union as well, uh, to develop uh, the loyalty, to develop the value that breeds the loyalty, that allows the company to be successful as well as the uh, Hong Kong Air Crew Officers Association.
0: Right. Now, with your current dispute, are we in a win-lose situation, or what are the likely outcomes?
5: I would hope the most likely outcome is a win-win situation. And uh, the win-win situation would be where the company recognizes the value of the pilots as a genuine asset and compensates them appropriately. And uh, the other win is for the company who gain from the goodwill and the uh, positive outlook uh, that the pilots have for their company
0: that was Chris from the Pilots Association no discussion about aviation at the present time would be complete without reference to that third runway and a little bit more detail on the congested airspace so back to Tony Tyler again
2: I don't believe that it's necessary for for passengers to pay more or indeed for even airlines to pay more the Hong Kong government sorry the Hong Kong airport is an extremely profitable airport one of the most profitable in the world it has a very um, conservative capital structure, it has very little debt. Um, and we believe that, uh, we've done some numbers on this, that the, that the airport could um, finance this runway through debt, um, and that it, its cash flows are strong enough for it to, to service that debt until the... Runway. the third runway, is operational. Then, of course, we'll need to look at what, what needs to be um, paid by the users of the, of the new runway um, to, to produce a return on that investment.
0: And uh, how has the government responded to your thoughts on this, well, that, they, they, that they pay for it themselves?
2: No, that, I think that, that, that everybody agrees that the best thing would be for the airport to, to fund the, air, the new runway internally through their own resources, and this will, this will provide the necessary commercial disciplines on it as well. Rather than, I don't think anybody's expecting the government to put its hand in its pocket to, uh, to finance this runway. It will come from the airport, uh, and eventually, of course, it will be paid for by the users of the airport, the airlines and the passengers. Uh, but it shouldn't be necessary for um, payment to be made of the new facility before it's in use.
0: That so can- you're saying that the, the, the general public should not be paying up front for this?
2: I don't believe that's necessary, no.
0: And finally, do you think China is going to let the train take the strain with all these high-speed lines they're putting in? Are they already seeing trains becoming more important than air travel?
2: Um, the high-speed network of trains in China has been very successful, and, and I've just been told that it generated some 800 million passenger journeys last year, which is extraordinary to really think how quickly it's got going. However, while, it has, while there has been enormous growth in the use of trains, there has still been huge growth in domestic air travel in China as well, and domestic mm. and international air travel for that, so, for that matter. So while trains will, will certainly play their part, I don't think it's going to serve to diminish by very much at all the growth in air traffic in China. So the future is looking good? The future for aviation in Hong Kong and indeed in, the, in, in China and the rest of Asia is looking very good.
0: That brings me to the end of another programme of Peaks and Troughs. And thank you very much to all my aviation experts this week. Next week we'll be looking at restaurants and asking the question, is Hong Kong's goose cooked? Until then, have a great week. Bye for now. Me and Jane in a plane, soaring up to the clouds. Me and Jane in a plane, far away
2: from the cross. In my two-seater, what could
4: be sweeter? I'll have St. Peter step inside and bless the bride be keeping my eye on the man in the
2: moon he's a dangerous guy when he starts to spoon my kisses i'll shower a million
0: hours. no traffic cop will ever stop me and jane in i'll play